We're continuing our study tonight that we've begun on Christ as revealed in the Old Testament scriptures. What we established in our introductory study a couple of studies ago is that Christ is both the main theme of the Old Testament, even when it's not obvious that he is, and he's the goal of the Old Testament, meaning that everything is ultimately working toward his arrival. But it's not just working toward his arrival, it's also describing his arrival in advance. And there are three primary ways that the Lord has done that. We're splitting those three primary ways into categories of study. And so far, we're just involved in the first category. So we're studying uh, Old Testament prophecies of Christ before he arrives. Then eventually what we'll get to are the... um, the accounts of the what, what are called in theology Christophanies, which are actual pre-incarnation appearances of Christ. And then the third and final section, and maybe the most interesting of the three categories, will be the, our study through the types and shadows of Christ that are found through some really um, unexpected portions of the Old Testament scriptures. So first, we're looking at the prophecies of Christ. And of course, these are prophecies are when God chose an individual prophet. And he, he did this with various prophets in the Old Testament. And through them, he inspired them, even though they may not have fully understood themselves what they were speaking about in the future. They were inspired by God to reveal something about the person or the work of Christ in advance. And in, in many cases hundreds and hundreds of years in advance of his actual arrival into this world. So in our first study of the prophecies of Christ in the Old Testament last time, what, we, what I identified it as is a study of the nature of Christ in Old Testament prophecy, because we're now going through various categories of, of messianic or Christ-specific prophecies. And so the first category we're looking at is the nature of Christ in prophecy, And what we saw there is that he is um, identified, and these are prophecies that tell us something about who he is in his true nature that would not have been automatically obvious to the people in the world of the time that Jesus lived in this world. But he was described as the seed of the woman, meaning that he would have a supernatural birth. We, of course, understand that to be the virgin birth. We saw that he would be born of the seed of Abraham. He would have to descend specifically from the family of Abraham. And then in an even more narrow focus, he would come eventually from the tribe of Judah. And even more narrow focus, be born to a specific family of Judah, which was the family of King David of Israel. And so he would end up being identified as the son of David. And really that was the title of all of the Old Testament titles of the messianic role, um, that's the one that Jesus chose most often to describe himself. He, um, he saw himself as the fulfillment of the prophecies about the son of David. And then the final passage that we looked at in uh, the prophecy of Micah is the identification of the Messiah as one who is really affiliated with or associated with the Ancient of Days concept, meaning that um, he's revealed as an eternal being, a being who didn't 
begin his existence at the point of his entrance into this world like you and I do or, or did, but that he existed before his birth and he has always lived from the most ancient times, only changing in the sense in his incarnation in terms of taking on human nature to, um, to, in, a sense, uh, to in a sense become both God and man as we understand theologically. Now what we're going to do tonight is we're going to finish uh, the, the focus on Christ's nature in Old Testament prophecy. I've got uh, maybe four more passages to look at in that regard. And then we're going to shift our focus to the second prophecy category, which is the character of Christ as revealed in the Old Testament prophecies. And what's still ahead of us in our study of Old Testament prophecies is we'll be looking next after this study tonight at um, the prophecies of the first coming of Christ. All of the detailed ways that the Old Testament prophets anticipated the arrival of the Messiah into this world. But for tonight, again, let's, let's start in Isaiah chapter 7. The first two passages we'll look at should be very familiar to you. Uh, we have studied them more than once in our uh, Christmas studies focus, um, both of these having to do with the entrance of Christ into the world. But I chose these two in addition to that concern because they reveal something very important about the nature of the Messiah and what distinguishes him in terms of nature from every other human being that's ever entered into this world or been born into this world. So the first passage is in Isaiah chapter 7. As I, get, as I said before, it's a, a familiar passage. This is the, the virgin birth prophecy. And it really ties to the first one we looked at last study, or two studies, no, I guess it was last study, uh, where we looked at the passage in uh, Genesis chapter 3, verse 15, uh, which was the very first Bible prophecy ever given, spoken not by a prophet so much as by the Lord himself, and spoken in the Garden of Eden, and identifying the Messiah as one who would be born of the seed of the woman, when every other human being born into this world would be born of the seed of a man, and the distinguishing factor there is that there's going to be something unusual and unique about the Messiah's birth in that it will be as seed of the woman points forward to without using this terminology. It will be a virgin birth. But let's, let's read how Isaiah describes it. And we're looking at Isaiah 7 verse 14. Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign and by the way, uh, each one of these prophecies comes within its own historic context that did have some meaning for the people that were alive during that time. I won't have time in this particular study to look at the background historic context in each one of the cases of these prophecies, or we would probably never get through our list. But I do want you to be aware these prophecies did mean something to the people that the Lord was communicating to in that day, but the ultimate and greatest meaning of the prophecies were pointing forward to the moment that Christ would enter into the world. And, and that's the case with this one. So verse 14 again, therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. And the word sign there just points to what we would call uh, something spiritually meaningful. One thing indicating something else. 
And so the one thing that's in view here that's going to indicate something else is the circumstances, the actual real-world circumstances of the birth of the Messiah pointing to something else about the Messiah. So let's read what that circumstance is going to be. The Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son and shall call his name Emmanuel. All right, so the actual circumstance that now functions according to the Lord's word through Isaiah here as a spiritual sign, a spiritually significant sign, is that the virgin will conceive. And the clear indicator here is, and this is certainly how the apostles in the New Testament read, interpreted, and understood and applied this prophecy to the events of Christ's entrance into the world. What's unusual is a virgin will conceive, the indicator being she's never had normal sexual relations with any man. And so she conceives without the involvement of a human male in her conception. So how in the world can that possibly happen? We know that that could only possibly happen if God did something unusual, if he did something different than every other. I mean, just stop and think for a moment. How many people have been born by natural means into this world in all of human history? I don't know the number. Right now, there's somewhere between six and seven billion people on the planet. And that's just the number of people that are alive right now on the face of the earth. All seven billion individuals that are alive in this world today were born by natural means of a male seed and a female egg combining and causing a conception by the grace and power of God and bringing a human being into the world. This one birth would be a sign birth because it's unusual, it's different, it's distinct from every other birth that's ever happened before this moment or ever will happen after this moment. This is a distinguishing event that only the Messiah can lay claim to. Only he will ever experience. And of course, we understand that uh, this was fulfilled in the events, the circumstances of Christ. Now let's, let's turn over quickly. We won't camp out here because we did study this in detail some, even though I'm not assuming you'll remember it, but some 12 years ago. Matthew chapter 1. We studied through the Gospel of Matthew together, but we were in chapter 1 a long time ago. And this is, of course, Matthew's account of the fulfillment of Isaiah chapter 7 in the events and the circumstances of the birth of the Lord Jesus. Uh, I'll read from verse 18 and just give a brief connecting explanation. Verse 18, Matthew 1. Now the birth of Jesus Christ took place in this way. When his mother Mary had been betrothed to Joseph, before they came together, the emphasis on before they came together is before their normal sexual relations that would occur on their wedding night. Before they came together, she was found to be with child from the Holy Spirit. And her husband Joseph, being a just man, and unwilling to put her to shame, resolved to divorce her quietly. Why? Because he did not know at this moment that what the child that had conceived in her womb was 
conceived by the Holy Spirit, he assumed, as you and I would, that she had been unfaithful and that she had been with a man. So he resolved to divorce her quietly. But as he considered these things, behold, an angel of the Lord appeared to him in a dream, saying, Joseph, son of David, do not fear to take Mary as your wife, for that which is conceived in her is from the Holy Spirit. She will bear a son, and you shall call his name Jesus, for he will save his people from their sins. All this, in verse 22 is our key verse in terms of our making this connection. We're just following Matthew's lead here. All this took place to fulfill what the Lord had spoken by the prophet. And here he quotes Isaiah 7, 14. Behold, the virgin shall conceive and bear a son, and they shall call his name Emmanuel, which means, now this is Matthew's uh, comment about that last phrase of the Isaiah prophecy, which I didn't emphasize when we were in Isaiah. Matthew comments because he's not assuming that all of his readers understand the language that the word Emmanuel comes from, and so he translates the name Emmanuel for us. They shall call his name Emmanuel, which means God with us. Now, the significance of that for us is this is another part. Really, there's two parts to this Isaiah 7 prophecy, and they both speak to the nature of Christ, the nature of the Messiah. 700 years, Isaiah proclaimed it before the entrance of Christ, the birth of Christ into this world. And the two comments, which both highlight the same but in two different ways element or aspect of the true nature of the Messiah is, one, he would be born of a virgin, which indicates his birth will be a divine birth unlike any other birth in this, in this world's history. And the second is his name will be called Emmanuel. Now, you've heard me emphasize many times that in the culture of that day, names had great spiritual meaning and significance, much more so than they do in our society today. And that comment in the prophecy doesn't mean that as Jesus went about his daily activities in the world and as he greeted new people and met new people, he didn't introduce himself as, oh, by the way, my name is Emmanuel. He went by the name Jesus throughout the entire time of his life in this world. This is a a spiritual description by adding a name to him which would not be his commonly called name But it's Isaiah's way, by the Spirit of God, of revealing his true nature by giving him an additional special name. That additional special name is Emmanuel, which means God with us. There's two ways to take that. It could mean, possibly, that in some sense, because Jesus is a particularly good person and a godly person, God is going to be with the people that Jesus ministers to because Jesus is such a godly person. Or it could mean what Isaiah and Matthew are clearly emphasizing, and this is the sense that I take it in, that it's stronger than that. The prophecy of the Emmanuel naming is a prophecy to say the one who is entering the world through this unique and distinct means of virgin birth is himself God manifesting in human flesh, God becoming a human being. And in that way, 
for the first time in history in this way that's never happened before and will never happen again. God is actually with us, those of us who are with Jesus in his life in this world. All right, so let's move on to another prophecy also in Isaiah. This one uh, also a, a commonly used at Christmas time prophecy. This is chapter 9 now, two chapters deeper into Isaiah's prophecy. And a, a wonderful, wonderful prophecy. And one that, while it is uh, appropriately emphasized at Christmas, um, it's kind of a shame if it only gets noticed at Christmas time. Because the, uh, the intent of this prophecy, and the scope of this prophecy, uh, should never be limited to uh, Christmas events only. We'll read from Isaiah 9. Verses 6 and 7. Isaiah prophesies and says, For to us, us here is the covenant people of Israel. He was born in a way that will ultimately benefit even the nations of the world, but he entered into the world through his association with the covenant people, meaning he was born of Israel. For to us a child is born, to us a child is given. That aspect simply emphasizes the gift nature of his entrance into the world. Um, we could link that and not, certainly not be twisting the, the meaning of Scripture with the famous passage in the Gospel of John, um, for God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son. Um, the entrance of the Messiah into the world is the greatest gift that God has ever given to the world and to humanity, to human history. And so his nature is highlighted in a, in a unique way here because it's not every child that's born into the world that is uh, viewed in this special gift from God perspective. And certainly he's unique in that way. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given, and the government shall be upon his shoulder. Now, at this point, it's not named. We'll, we'll get into a little bit more detail in verse 7. But the government that's indicated or implied here is the government of Israel, but not just in a natural sense, more in a kingdom of God perspective as the kingdom of God in heaven is reflected and represented by the kingdom of Israel on earth. It's that government that's in view. The government shall be upon his shoulder, meaning all of the authority of God's kingdom will ultimately be funneled by God himself through this one individual who will bear God's authority on earth to an extent, to a degree that no human being ever had or ever would beyond him. The government shall be upon his shoulder and his name shall be called. And here we have a list of four special messianic names. All four are significant. We've studied all four at different Christmas seasons as a church. But I'm just going to highlight two of them because two of these uh, give us a description of his ministry in this world. And two of these give us a description of his 
unique nature. And I'm going to focus on the two that focus on his nature because that's, that's what we're studying currently. His name shall be called, remember the names highlight some spiritual significance. His name shall be called, name number one, wonderful counselor. That has to do with his ministry in this world. Second, mighty God. That has to do with his nature. Third, everlasting father. That has to do with his nature. And then fourth, like a sandwich with one starting in one category, two in the middle category, and then one at the end category. The, th- the fourth name, prince of peace. Again, having to do with his ministry in this world like the first one. So our focus is on the two middle names, how they highlight prophetically through Isaiah's words some aspect of the nature of the Messiah as he enters into this world. So Isaiah says he's, the Messiah is going to enter into this world and he's going to bear four names. Now, of course, these are not the only four names in all of scripture that are associated with the Messiah, but these are the four chosen ones to communicate God's concern in this particular prophecy. And the first name that we're focusing on is the Messiah will be appropriately named Mighty God. Now, what I want you to understand is that there was no one in all of Israel's history that ever would have dared be named by their parents because generally speaking, this was the way it worked. Uh, still works that way to this day in, in human societies, uh, no matter what time in, in the various eras of history. And that is, as chi- children enter into the world, their parents are the ones that take responsibility to name them. It never would have happened for any father of Israel to name his child, this is going to be your name, son. You are going to be called, for the duration of your life in this world, Mighty God. Why would they never name a child in that way? Because it would be taken as a claim to deity, to divinity, as somehow the father was saying about that child, this child is unlike any other human being. This child is a divine child. This child bears the nature of deity within him, unlike any other human being. But that's exactly what Isaiah prophetically claims about the Messiah and his entrance into the world. His name will be Mighty God. Not, and this would have been a common way if this was the intention, you could have named a child in those days, My God is the Mighty God. And in in bearing a name like that, and there were Hebrew names that took that form, My God is the mighty God. What you would be proclaiming is, I have a relationship with the one true God. My life is really defined by my connection to the one true God, but it's him that's the mighty God, and I don't want anybody to mistake and think that I'm claiming that I myself am the mighty God. What's prophetically unique about Jesus and about the Messiah, as he is described in advance here, is that's exactly the claim that God the Father is making about his son as he enters the world, and he's making that claim by inspiring Isaiah to name him in this way before he ever enters the world. Second name that is a concern to us, and this one is 
even a little bit more challenging, and that is he would be named this, Everlasting Father. Again, not a statement, my God is the Everlasting Father, but that he himself is the Everlasting Father, or his name associates him in some special and unique way with the Everlasting Father by actually taking that name upon himself. Now, I think we're strong enough as a church in our theology that I don't have to take you guys through a long explanation of the distinctions of how God reveals himself as three persons in one being that we identify as God. So we know God to reveal himself to us, make himself known to us as God the Father, God the Son, and God the Holy Spirit. And of course, we identify rightly God the Son with the Lord Jesus Christ. But here, interestingly in this prophecy, his name is not everlasting Son, but everlasting Father. And so what are we to make of that? A wrong connection would be to draw the conclusion that what Isaiah is saying is that Jesus is, in a literal way, God the Father on earth. And that would be a misunderstanding, and it would be a, a serious misunderstanding, really, from a theological perspective, a heretical misunderstanding. It's such a serious misunderstanding of the nature of God. But there is a connection here that we're not meant to miss, and you're familiar with it. Let's keep our place in Isaiah 9. I'll come back, and let's jump over to another well-known passage, I think, to most of your hearts in the Gospel of John, chapter 14. We're looking for some New Testament explanation of, is it true that Jesus could appropriately be named as Everlasting Father? So this is uh, John 14. This is, of course, the events of the Last Supper. And this is part of an extended final personal instruction that Jesus gave to the 11 apostles, the 11 disciples, after Judas has left the room that night to betray him. And Jesus goes into, into depth in instructing his disciples at, at a level that he had not before this time. And at a certain point in the evening, one of his disciples, Philip, has a very direct question He's somewhat confused. Jesus has been teaching them about God the Father, dating all the way back to the, the instruction in the Sermon on the Mount and the, what we call the Lord's Prayer and instructing his disciples to pray in this way, our Father who is in heaven. And so that was some almost three years before this night. And Philip, we don't know if he's been holding this question in his mind all that time, but it's on his mind that night, and he wants to ask it, and he does. So let's, uh, let's pick up in verse 6. Jesus said to him, I am the way, the truth, and the life. No one comes to the Father except through me. If you had known me, you would have known my Father also. From now on, you do know him and have what? You have seen him. Now, Jesus just claimed to these 11 men 
that if you have seen Jesus, you have seen the Father. Does he mean by that that he is God the Father and God the Son at the same time? No, he doesn't mean that, but he does mean something very significant that is easy to miss. He's, and obviously, the disciples had missed the point that he's making. This is why he has to explain it. So he says, from now on, you do know him and have seen him. Philip said to him, Lord, he's, Jesus, uh, keep the context here. Jesus has just told him, if you've seen me, you've seen the Father. And Philip is somewhat confused. And he says to him, Lord, show us the Father. And it is enough for us. I'll be satisfied. Just in a sense, kind of like uh, using the, the idea of the, the Holy of Holies in the, in the temple in Jerusalem. It's, it's like Philip was saying, because the Holy of Holies is where God dwelt in the Old Testament context. He's kind of like saying, Lord, if you just pull back the curtains that separate the outer, the outer room of the temple from the inner room of the temple so that we can see into that inner room and see the one sitting upon the Ark of the Covenant, which represents the throne of God in heaven. Just show us so that our physical eyes can see the Father and then we'll be satisfied that, okay, now we get it. Now we understand who you are. Now we understand who God the Father is. It'll all be clear and all be straight in our theological perspectives. And Jesus answers that honest and good-hearted appeal by Philip, just show us the Father. Jesus said to him, have I been with you so long? And you still do not know me, Philip. He doesn't say, have I been with you so long and you still do not know him? He says, have I been with you so long and you do not, still do not know me, Philip? Whoever has seen me has seen the Father. How can you say, show us the Father? In other words, what he's saying is, there's no greater way to show you the Father than what you have already been shown. The incarnation of Christ was, first and foremost, the incarnation of the Son of God. But later in the book of Colossians, Paul tells us that in the person of the Son, the fullness of deity dwelt in bodily form meaning God the Father was living in the Son, God the Son was living in the Son, and God the Holy Spirit was living in the Son. So that if you saw him with true spiritual perspective, you saw God the Father being revealed, God the Son being revealed, and God the Holy Spirit being revealed. So he goes on to say in verse 10, do you not believe that I am in the Father and the Father is in me? So here he adds a distinguishing explanation so that we don't misunderstand that he's somehow claiming to be the father. He's not the father, but in the person of the son, the father is revealed in a way that the father had not up until that point in history been fully made known and fully revealed. So when Isaiah prophesies and says in advance about the Messiah entering into the world. His name will be Everlasting Father. You and I should not be confused about that. It's exactly what Jesus is explaining here in this passage. All right, let's head back to Isaiah 9. There's one other uh, detail about the nature of the Messiah that's revealed in the last verse of the Isaiah 9 prophecy. We, we left off reading at the end of verse 6. 
This is now Isaiah 9, 7. And it's speaking again of the Messiah, of the increase of his government. And this, of course, again, is the government of God, which he will be in charge of. Of the increase of his government and of peace, there will be no end on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it, to uphold it with justice and with righteousness from this time forth and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will do this. So there are two key phrases that I want to highlight that speak not in an obvious way, but a very significant way about the nature of the Messiah. One is, at the beginning of verse 7, speaking about the increase of his government, there will be no end. Meaning, when he assumes, when the Messiah assumes the mantle of the government of God, which is the kingdom of God, that there will be no end to his governance from that point forward for how long? For then on until the end of time as we know and understand it, and it will continue on even beyond that. And then the second phrase toward the end of verse 7 This will take place, it's repeated here just to make sure we didn't miss the implication of the first phrasing. This will take place from this time forth and forevermore. Not from the time of Isaiah forth, but from the time of the Messiah's um, assuming the mantle of the government of God. From that time that he assumes that government, from that time forth and forevermore beyond that point. Now, what nature of being can rule forever? And of course, there's only one nature of being that can possibly accomplish that. Um, you know, we're, we're just uh, a couple days past one of our election times here in this nation and in the state and in the city. And uh, we, we elect people to rule in various offices and at various levels of authority. Uh, and let's just assume we, we happen to pick the perfect person to rule and we never wanted their rule to come to an end. No matter how much you want their rule to never come to an end, uh, their rule will come to an end because they're going to live their natural lifespan in this world. They're going to die and they can't rule beyond that point. What's unique about the Messiah is once he begins to rule, he will never stop ruling. His government will never come to an end. His governance will never come to an end. And his government will continue to expand from the point that he assumes it forevermore throughout all of eternity to follow. Only a divine ruler could fulfill that prophecy. All right, let's look at another one. This one now, uh, these next two actually are in the book of Psalms. So these are from a, uh, a category of prophecy known as Messianic Psalms. The first one is in Psalm 2. All of, the, all of the Psalms, of course, are spiritual songs that the Lord inspired for his people to use in worship. But a few of them are in an even more special category in that they are aimed at the lyrics of the songs are aimed at describing the Messiah before his arrival into this world. In Psalm 2, the entire psalm is certainly a messianic song. 
But we're not going to look at every verse for our study. I'll just read uh, verses 6 and 7. And there's a person speaking in verses 6 and 7. And in verse 6, the person speaking is the Lord himself. He's being quoted here. It's the same Lord that's identified back in verse 2 as the Lord alongside his anointed. The anointed um, in our translation, English translation, anointed is just another um, translation of the, the term Messiah. Messiah means the anointed one. So there's two in, key individuals in focus here. That's the Lord and the Messiah, the anointed one. So when we get to verse 6, it's the Lord that's speaking, and he's speaking about the Messiah. And he says this, As for me, I have set my king on Zion, my holy hill. I will tell of the decree. The Lord said to me, you are my son. Now here, the Messiah is being quoted. So in the first verse, 6, the Lord is being quoted. In the second verse, now the Messiah is speaking responsively to the declaration of the Lord. The Lord said to me, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now there's two key terms here. One is obvious and the other is uh, theologically challenging but super important for us to rightly understand. One is the Messiah would be called the son of the Lord or we could um, easily uh, phrase that as the son of God. Now for us, more familiar with a Christian culture that already understands the New Testament fulfillment of these kinds of descriptions. Calling someone the Son of God, as long as we call the right person the Son of God, is not a challenging thing. But in an Old Covenant perspective, it was deeply challenging to the Old Testament people of Israel for anyone to claim to be the Son of God because again, that claim would be a claim to a unique divine nature of deity. In some way, any human being living in this world would be human, but also divine. And that was for the most part outside of the scope of their perspective and understanding. Even though the Lord had revealed that in prophecy, it was not obvious to them. And we know, we studied this in our first uh, study just beginning this new teaching series from the passage in Luke 24 where the Lord appeared to two of his disciples and then later to all of the 11 after his resurrection and he had to open their minds to understand passages like this that were written hundreds of years in advance about him but they did not see and understand them in the fullness of what they really meant until the Lord opened their minds to understand it. But we should understand it. So he's the son of the Lord or the son of God, a claim to deity as a human being. But the second thing that's equally important here is this statement now referring to what the Lord, who is in the role of God the Father, had said about the Messiah's entrance into the world Today, I have begotten you. Now, the word begotten is really a simple and straightforward word, but it, it creates some 
theological challenge for us to understand rightly. The word begotten simply means to give birth to. To give birth to. The Lord is saying about his son, the Messiah, today I have given birth to you. And so the theological challenge is, what does that mean in terms of the Messiah? Does that mean that somehow maybe the Messiah didn't exist before the point of his being begotten by the Father and he comes into existence at the point of his birth like you and I did? Or is it saying something different but super significant about his entrance into the world? All right, so let's look over into the New Testament again. And this time we'll go back to the Gospel of John, but chapter 1. And um, this isn't the only New Testament passage that addresses this issue, but I think it's the most clear and helpful one. This first section of the Gospel of John, we won't take the time to read the whole section, but this first section is focused entirely on the um, entrance of the Messiah into the world and its meaning, the significance of his entrance. We're going to read just one verse, which is verse 14. It's kind of, the, kind of the conclusion of this early section of the Gospel of John. And the word, and of course, just, just for a moment, read back up in verse 1 of chapter 1 of John. In the beginning was the word, and the word was with God, and the word was God. So we're talking about a divine being, the word of God, who is God, who now in verse 14 is entering into the world in the event that we call the incarnation. And the word, verse 14, became flesh and dwelt among us. And we have seen his glory, glory as of the only son from the father, full of grace and truth. Now, that is not a bad translation that the ESV has provided for us. It's just not a great translation because it leaves out a detail that shouldn't be left out. Uh, Let me give you from the translation we formerly studied from as a church, the New American Standard Version of the phrasing that's found in John 1.14 that speaks to this unique nature of the Messiah in his entrance into the world, tying it to the Psalm 2 emphasis on him being the begotten of the Lord as he enters the world. The NASB describes the Messiah in John 1.14 as the only begotten God. Now, that phrase in itself is somewhat theologically challenging. And I'm just, rather than digging into all of the the arguments and the the considerations of the meaning of that phrase, I'm just going to simplify it and give you what uh, the, the best theologians have agreed as to its meaning. Jesus is, the Messiah is, the only begotten God. What that emphasizes is in one sense, a true sense, he is divine. 
He is deity. He is God himself. But in another sense, he is also begotten, meaning there is a birth moment in which he enters into this world as a human being. So combined together, the concept is God the Son was begotten at the point of his incarnation, his virgin birth into this world, and became a human being. When he became a human being, he did not cease to be God. And when he was God, it doesn't exclude the possibility of him becoming a human being at the point of his incarnation. Both ideas are true in the event of his incarnation. And of course, that and that alone, among all of the things, if, we, if this was the only statement that clarified our understanding about who Jesus is in comparison to every other human being, and there are many other distinguishing characteristics about him, but if this is the only one we had, we would have this much to understand, and that is there's no other human being like him before, he came into this world and there's no other human being that will ever be like him again that will ever come into the world following him. He is the unique human being because he is both God and man at the same time. All right, one last prophecy of the nature of the Messiah, and this is also in the book of Psalms. And we're going to look at Psalm 110, 110. And this is the most quoted messianic psalm and the most quoted messianic prophecy in the new testament we won't take time to read all of the the places in the new testament that it is quoted but i just wanted to alert you to the fact that this is even among the messianic psalms a super important one and it's not a long psalm it's only seven verses long But we're going to focus on the first four verses. Let me just go ahead and read those four. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. The Lord sends forth from Zion your mighty scepter, rule in the midst of your enemies. Your people will offer themselves freely on the day of your power in holy garments. From the womb of the morning, the dew of your youth will be yours. The Lord has sworn and will not change his mind. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now, when we studied through the book of Hebrews together on Thursday night some few years ago, uh, we focused a lot of attention on verse 4, the prophecy of uh, him being a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. So I'm not going to revisit that at this point. I'll come back to it when we eventually get to the prophecies about the roles of Christ that are identified in the Old Testament. But what I want to focus our attention on primarily is what's revealed in verse 1. And this is really the primary focus of how this passage, this messianic passage, prophecy is quoted in the New Testament. The Lord says to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Now this may be, and it certainly was for the religious leaders that Jesus often interacted with, them in opposition to him, but him representing the truth to them. This may be the most challenging messianic prophecy in all of the Old Testament prophecies. Because of this phrase that begins verse 1, the Lord says to my Lord, 
What is the implication? What's the scene? What's the scenario that's being portrayed here in this prophecy uh, as David is writing this song lyric, this holy song lyric under the immediate inspiration of the Holy Spirit? The, the difficulty, the challenging part to an old covenant Israelite is that the scene that's being portrayed is that there are actually two lords in view here. Two lords. And what was so challenging about that is because of what the Lord had revealed to his people about his nature and about his relationship with them and a, a key passage back in the old covenant law, the law of God, the law of Moses, Hear, O Israel, the Lord our God is one. And they rightly understood that to be a revelation about the, the monotheistic nature of God. Meaning, God is distinguished from the idolatrous gods of all the nations. He's not like the the pantheon of gods that the Greeks and the Romans worshipped. He's not like the, the gods of Norse mythology where there were, there were dozens of gods and goddesses. And all of the other ancient cultures, every single one of them without exception, believed in a multiplicity of gods. But what was unique about the God of Israel is that he has one singular nature. And that's absolutely true. And that's absolutely right. And Psalm 110 does not undermine that or argue against that. But what is true about the nature of God is that he is one in nature, but three in person. And that second detail of the nature of God was the detail that they missed in their reading of the Old Testament scriptures. Now here there are only two of the three persons of what we now understand to be the Godhead in Revelation that are in view or in focus in this particular passage. Who are these two lords that are having a conversation with each other? We understand them to be God the Father and God the Son having a conversation about God's unfolding purposes in redemptive history. The first lord that speaks is God the Father. And the second Lord that receives the communication from the first is God the Son. So God the Father says to God the Son, sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. This is, and we did look at this not too long ago at the beginning of our study of the ascension of Christ in Acts chapter 1. This is an ascension specific messianic prophecy. But it's true from the beginning of the story of Jesus in terms of what it reveals about his nature. So God the Father, no one of us would argue or question that God the Father is divine in his nature, but he is speaking to a Lord who is equally divine in his nature. Two lords in view having a conversation with each other. Now this is fulfilled. We'll read just one of them real quickly. And then we'll move on and I'll give you two others, uh, two other New Testament passages for those who are taking notes and want to read them on your own time. The one we'll read is in Matthew. This is the one we studied in some detail not too long ago. Matthew 22. 
And then the other two passages, if you want to look them up later, one of them is just ahead of us in our Acts study. It's Acts 2.34, and the other is in Hebrews chapter 12, verse 2. But we'll look at Matthew 22, and this is part of a, a confrontation conversation between Jesus and the religious leaders of the day. And I'm reading from, again, Matthew 22, but I'm starting now in verse 41 as he's interacting with Pharisees. Now, while the Pharisees were gathered together, Jesus asked them a question. And you might remember the explanation I gave when we studied this, which is Jesus isn't asking them a question because he doesn't know the answer. He's looking to be taught by them. He feels like maybe they've got more insight than he does. Um, that's a valid way to ask a question if that's the case. But he knows far more than they know. He understands far more than they understand about all things, but especially about the Old Testament scriptures that he's going to be referencing. And he's asking them the question in order to stimulate their minds and hearts to think about a familiar passage through new eyes and new perspective. Now, because their hearts are hardened, they're not going to be happy about this new perspective. They're not going to embrace it. But it's nevertheless just as true. So this is the question he asks. What do you think about the Christ? And they would have heard this word as, what do you think about the Messiah? The special one, the chosen one prophesied in all of the Old Testament scriptures. Whose son is he? Now, right there, that's a challenging question to them because none of the Pharisees were ready to acknowledge that the Messiah was actually the Son of God. They believed and were convinced that the Messiah would come into the world, but that he would be a human being like all other human beings. He would be a special human being. He would have a special purpose above other human beings, but he would not be divine in his nature and therefore could not accurately be described as the Son of God. So even in the way that Jesus asked the question, he's challenging their failed spiritual perspective. What do you think about the Christ? Whose son is he? They said to him, the son of David. Now, that's a true answer. The, the Pharisees answered rightly, but they avoided the deeper issue of what Jesus was driving at. What Jesus was driving at is, do you guys realize that the Messiah, and this has been revealed in Old Testament prophecy about him, the Messiah is actually the son of God. They weren't ready to embrace that concept, and so they skirt around where he's driving, and they say, well, he's revealed in Scripture as the son of David, meaning the son of a human being, maybe a great human being, a special human being, King David, the hero of Israel, he's his son, but they avoid having to say he's the son of God. And it is true that the Messiah would be both the son of God and the son of David. But here's how Jesus then responds to their answer. Verse 43, he said to them, okay, now I'm adding some words here. Okay, you're right, he's the son of David, but have you thought about this? Because if he's only the son of David, meaning merely a human being like David was, then how do you account for this messianic psalm and what it says about the Messiah? 
He said to them, how is it then that David in the spirit, meaning he's just, in his very introduction to his question, he's emphasizing the aspect that when David spoke or wrote the lyrics to this messianic psalm in Psalm 110, which is what Jesus is about to quote in reference, that he was writing that lyric under the immediate and direct inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God writing this through David. How is it then that David in the Spirit calls him Lord? Not God, the Father, but the Messiah who has been born into this world. How could he call him Lord if he's only a human being? And then he quotes Psalm 110, saying, the Lord said to my Lord, sit at my right hand until I put your enemies under your feet. And Jesus uh, draws tight now the, the biblical trap that he laid for their misunderstanding with an if-then statement. If then David calls him Lord, how is he his son? Meaning a being that's truly the Lord as revealed in the Old Covenant Scriptures couldn't possibly be born to a human being, could he? And yet there was one individual the exceptional individual, the messianic individual, who in his incarnation and in his birth actually did fit in both categories. He is both a human son of David and a divine Lord at the same time. Neither of those aspects of his true nature overwhelming the other. And at verse 46, the argument ends. Why? because they don't know how to answer what he's just laid out from the scriptures. And it goes on to say, and no one was able to answer him a word. And then not only did the argument end that day, but nor from that day did anyone dare to ask him any more questions. It's kind of like they finally realized this guy knows a little bit too much about the scriptures for, for us to be able to argue with him. And so they just at that point, they decide to avoid him and they set about their conspiracy to murder him. But what we're meant to take from it, of course, is the emphasis on the, 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 the special nature of the Messiah. Both descriptions in the, in the um, passage here in Psalm 110 uh, emphasizing those two key aspects of his nature. He is both God and man in one person. He is both the son of God and the son of David. All right, so that brings us to the end of our time tonight. I thought we might get to the next category, which is the character of the Messiah. Uh, I'll have to save that for our next study. So uh, we'll look forward to looking at some Old Testament prophecies that describe him in advance, not just describe his nature, but describe what kind of a man will he be in this world? How will he live? What will distinguish him? All of those Old Testament prophecies pointing to his character, um, in a sense being a, a gracious revelation by God the Father so that when the Messiah would begin his public ministry, for those who had eyes to see and hearts to discern him, he would be able to be recognized because of how different he would be in his ministry than anyone that had ever come before him or would ever come after. All right, we'll end our study there tonight. God bless you.